Welcome to the Film Experience Podcast. This is Murtada El Fadl. We are back to regular programming um, where hopefully we will be able to record every week or a couple of weeks as in this very strange movie season. And I'm here with Nathaniel. Hi, Nathaniel. Hi, Murtada. Yay, we're back. Hopefully yeah. weekly. <laughs> now, it does feel like even though movie theaters are not open in New York or L.A., which are the two biggest markets, um, it does feel like movies are trying to spiritually be back because everybody's talking about them again. The festivals are kicking off. So, um, yeah, I've been really impressed that the festivals happened and happened in this way. Um, like it's been really heartening to see that New York Film Festival, which is my favorite festival, that they're doing the drive-ins, which I haven't been to any, but you know, I've watched movies at home. The virtual thing seems to be. Um, really successful, the virtual festival, and I've heard from like friends who don't live in New York who've been able to see things like the Sofia Coppola movie or Nomadland. So being virtual has opened the festival to to people who don't live in New York. So that's like one positive thing to to take from these virtual festivals. That is a positive, although I do think the press for festivals could have been better in terms of the virtual part because we still get a lot of comments um, that you know, people are like, well, how will I ever see this? And I'm like, you can actually rent it right now. <laughs> or, But it's just like the the idea of like virtual screenings. I don't mm. think Hollywood has quite uh, figured out how to uh, share that idea with the general populace. Because yeah. it's very like you have to really be paying attention because there's always these tight windows where you can do something and rent it. And um, and also they have this weird thing where they sell out. <laughs> Even I'm not saying I put that in air quotes with my fingers um, mm-hmm. because, you know, there's no reason why those things should sell out. And you'd think they could, they could just make money. Yeah, um, I think I heard Eugene Hernandez, who's the head of the New York Film Festival, saying that it's basically a deal between the festival and distributors. They tell them this movie would have shown at Alice Dolly twice. That's the number of seats. And so this is the number of virtual passes we'll give out because, of course, the distributor wants to limit the number and control the conversation and also control how many people can see the movie. Because when the movie comes out in two or three months, there'll be more people that want to see it. So it's a deal between the festival and the distributor the way I understood it. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense, except for, you know, there's still such a lag in when things might open uh, because, like, a lot of these festival titles are saying you know, that they're going to open in December, January, or February, whatever, because they're hoping for Oscars. But, you know, the big blockbusters keep still keep moving their dates back. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. you know, a lot of them are just, you know, like Black Widow just moved to summer next year. Um, so a lot of the big titles are are realizing we should just push back a year to begin with. Yeah. So we don't know if that's going to happen to any of these titles either. Yeah, I don't know what's going to happen to these smaller titles because they need the word of mouth. I mean, Focus just opened Kajillionaire in, I heard, 500 theaters or whatever. I was reading some article, which is basically the theaters that it would have opened in uh, for a limited run that is not excluding New York and L.A. So that is a, a model that maybe other people will follow if New York mm-hmm. and L.A. Not, don't open by December or whenever these movies are supposed to come out. Um, so we'll see. It's all up in the air. And like, there's a lot of things that, um, I think one, just one personal thing about watching all these movies basically at home is I think just I've started thinking of 
like the medium doesn't matter to me anymore because there is no difference to me between Steve McQueen's Love is Rock, which is supposedly a show on Amazon. It's a TV show and Nomadland. I saw them on the same day, sitting on the same couch, using the same TV. So I don't know why I should think of one as a movie and the other as a TV show when aesthetically they are not that different. You know, it's a complete story within two hours for both. I'm watching them the same way. So I don't know why one is up for Oscars, one is up for Emmys. And I think that line is going to be murkier as more people watch these things online. It's just like, what is a TV show? What is a movie? Mm -hmm. Um, Like, I know I'm going to put I May Destroy You on my top 10 list, whatever it is, because it's what I saw this year. That was the best thing I saw. And I saw 90% of things except for the two months at the beginning of the year on the same way on my couch in my living room. I, yeah, I mean, I'm starting to think that it's definitely good. I mean, it's been a problem for a while, the line, yeah. the line getting blurrier. But um, when I, I guess I shouldn't say problem. That connotes that it's horrible. Like, obviously, it's, things change, you know. Yeah. So, But, I mean, the line has been getting murkier, and I'm wondering if maybe they should just decide that single stories are movies and continuing stories are TV and just leave yeah. it at that. That would be so, easier, like, I think. I, yeah, I think that would be easier because, like, I also don't really understand the small acts miniseries that Steve McQueen's things are showing at festivals because they're like Mangrove is a full feature length. It's two hours and six minutes. Yes, so that's so. Why is that length. part of a TV series? I mean, it's five. I mean, the way he he explained it at the New York Film Festival press conference, it's that it's five movies. Um, related to each other only in theme and setting. Um, mm-hmm. But it is five standalone movies in um, with varying, you know, the length varies. Like Lover's Rock was 17 minutes, I think. So that's maybe the shortest one. And then mm-hmm. Mangrove, which was the second one that showed, that was over two hours. So that's definitely feature length. And, you know, there are movies that are 70 minutes. Long. Yeah, no, 70 minutes is, is officially feature length. You could <laughs> release that in theaters. And I don't know if, how people would respond to that movies used to have like much shorter lengths than, than they, than, you know, contemporary audiences are used to. But, um, you know, there's lots of old movies that are 70, 80 minutes long rather than 90 or up. I'm just sort of like, you know, it's aesthetically, it is a movie like lovers rock, even if it is 17 minutes, it's a beautifully told contained story that, and like, it was like the first movie that I saw, um, that I wished I could see in a big screen um, because, mm-hmm. you know, it's basically a one long house party and it's just mm-hmm. the way that it's filmed and these long extended shots of people dancing and singing along and having fun. It's just felt to me like, you know, I wanted to see it in a bigger screen than my TV. And that was, you know, and I wanted to like maybe dance a little. I did do a little dance on my couch, but like maybe I could stand <laughs> up and cheer at like at the end of one of the long um, scenes. Um, it it sort of brought that kind of um, feeling. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm struggling because even though I have a very big TV, I don't like the way movies look on TVs. I just it they definitely still look much different than movie theater screens look. Um, I don't like the pixelation that happens. I don't like uh, especially because I, I don't know why artists in Hollywood haven't, you know, thought about this, but 
movies tend to be much darker, um, contemporarily speaking, in terms of cinematography than, you know, they were even like, I don't know, 30 years ago. Um, like there's lots and lots of movies that have like very murky, you know, dark palettes. And when you pixel it, when you, you know, airplay those from your laptop, for example, you will often get, even on a really good service like Vimeo, you will often get like distorted imagery. Um, or, you know, like the blacks tend to like become like these weird pixelated, you know, like, and I just, I just think, they still haven't really thought about how to work through those issues. If, if we're going to be watching everything in our homes, mm-hmm. that's, that's my feeling about it. I don't know. Maybe your TV is better than mine. I have a really huge TV, but like, I just don't find the experience very satisfying with, with movies. Uh-oh. Like Nomad Land was very tough to watch on, in my living room. Mm. Like it did not look great. And I know that cinematographer is amazing. Yeah, I mean, I loved watching, I loved the cinematography of Nomadland. It looked fine to me. Like, um, I didn't have any problem with any of these movies. And I watched Nomadland, like, twice. Um, mm-hmm. Or I put it on twice because um, I watched it on my computer because, you know, the first time I watched it was during the working day. And I can't just blast the TV on when, you know, I'm sharing the apartment with my husband. So I was watching it on my computer with my headset. And then in the evening, I put it on again as I was writing my review. Um, and so... It was on the t- you know, on the TV, and both times it looked the same and fine. So, hmm. but it- maybe your airplay services. I don't know. Mine, like, it definitely like I because I watched the writer, um, you know, Chloe Zhao's uh, previous film, shot by the same cinematographer, mm-hmm. um, and they do aesthetically look similar. The the um, cinematography, um. But I watched the writer on a screener, but like a DVD screener mm-hmm. at home during that award season. Um, and it looked great. Um, but Nomadland did not look great to me. And I kept seeing these shots that I'm like, oh, I bet that was, I bet that's a really pretty shot. But it just did not look pretty on my TV. Is it so maybe I mean, because your DVD player plays on your TV. So maybe it's the I don't know, something on your Internet. I don't know. I am yeah. not technically savvy, but just... I, I just I know I'm not the only one. <laughs> I just know I'm not the only one because when I express, like, frustration about this, I generally hear from people like, yeah, I'm having trouble, too. Like, I just te- technologically speaking, even though I have a new TV and, you know, uh, high-speed Internet, I, for whatever reason, I have lots of issues. Like... It's we were going to talk about movies we're not talking about on the service because I just cannot get the screeners to work. Um, like all all the new Netflix things that haven't quite come out at this recording, um, but I do have access to them, but they won't play. <laughs> and I also had that experience with Mulan um, a month ago. I tried for a week, was on the phone with Disney for hours, could never get the screener to play. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, it, like all these things, they're they're kind of boring technical problems, but Hollywood will have to solve them because if I'm having the issue, imagine an Academy member who's like 20 years older than me (laughs) having these technical issues, they're just going to give up because they have like 10 other movies they can watch. I think the only thing I can say is that there are limited time where you can watch things because I know we want to talk about the boys in the band and I watched that, but basically they send me the link and it was something linked 
to a press conference that they're doing. So I had to start the movie at the time. They told me to start the movie and mm-hmm. I did and I watched it. And I think it's the same thing of sending me an invitation to a screening room. I had to get on the subway and get to Midtown to watch the movie at seven o'clock or eight o'clock or whatever time they assigned for the press screening. So sending a link and telling me I need to start at 8 p.m. to me is the same thing. So there are limitations in that. Like I couldn't like I tried to go the next day to watch a little bit of it um, mm-hmm. as I was writing my review for the boys in the band, but it had already expired. So I couldn't see it, which is the same thing. If I had gone to Midtown and watched it and I was writing my review the next day, I wouldn't have been able to watch 10 minutes of it or whatever it is. One scene mm-hmm. that I wanted to get. Um, well, maybe, from. Yeah. Maybe I need to just, you know, yell at my, uh, cable provider. I don't know because I did like the trial of the Chicago seven. That's another one. A lot of people online were talking about, and I did show up on time for that, for that press screening. Um, and it just wouldn't play. I would get like 30 seconds of the movie at a time and then it would freeze up. And since it was a live screening virtually, it would just start again in like five minutes. And then I would get another 30 seconds and that would stop and then it would jump ahead. So I had no idea what was going on. So I eventually just turned it off. Hmm. Yeah. Um, well, it's a new world for everyone. So maybe like in a couple of months, everyone will figure it out. Yeah, I just, oh, it's been a frustrating summer with movies. But anyway, let's talk about movies we liked to make it happier because like technological problems are boring. Apologies if you're listening. Growing. Talk about the movies. Yes. Uh, Nomadland. Uh, lovely. It's so gorgeous, beautiful. Um, just a lovely story. I, I do. Uh, the interesting thing about it winning, it's starting the season so strong and winning is it's very, very um, quiet. And like, this is not a knock, even though it'll sound like a knock. Nothing happens. <laughs> it's like there's not a plot. It's just like a collection of, you know, sort of scenes. Um, and like you said in your review that's posted at the film experience, it's a, a lot of like nice to meet you type of little scenes. Yeah. Um, and, but it's very like the cumulative power of it is substantial. Um, and it's really lovely, but it's a very, very specific type of experience. And I wonder if, if hype of winning a bunch of awards early on might actually hurt it because it's not flashy in any way you could possibly think of. Mm-hmm. I think their marketing for it has been just brilliant and they took it to all these festivals. They took advantage of the fact that a lot of people are sort of gun shy of two things going to the festivals, mm-hmm. which are two months early um, this year, basically because of the Oscars moving their date. And, you know, and a lot of filmmakers don't want to show their movies or there were restrictions on travel and all of that, but they mm-hmm. decided to just go to all these festivals and show it. And I think it, um, it, really has paid off for them because it is the movie that's dominating the conversation because it's the one that people can agree on and people it's such a sort of beautifully told that even if you have qualms here or there and I had a couple um, you still sort of just the the power of it the cumulative power of it is so gorgeous to behold that you just you just get swept in it and I think we've all been trying to to watch stuff and there is stuff available but not as much as Mm -hmm. every other year and so there is this is something for everybody to sort of just rally around and say oh i love that one yeah 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 and it's very um 
I do think the teaser, since we're talking about the marketing a little bit of what they've been doing, it's been very smart. The teaser mm-hmm. is, you know, for those of you who haven't had access to the movie, which is most of you, <laughs> um, the teaser where she's just like sort of walking along and somebody asks her to join them by this campfire or whatever. And she's like, no, I'm just going on a little walk. And that is very much how the movie is. So like the teaser is like, um, so if if you thought that teaser was very effective, I think you will really love the movie exactly. um, because it's very sort of like uh, observational and mellow and like spending time with the interesting thing to me about it um, intellectually is that you're sort of getting very, very intimate with someone who sort of uh, throws up every obstacle she can to intimacy mm-hmm. with other people. So you're, you're, you're basically her companion, even though she is like the most loner of all loners you'll meet in the movies. She has real trouble, trouble like letting people in. Um, which is an interesting, I, I found a very interesting, a feeling like I felt like I was there with her, but she didn't know I was there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it is, you know, I was just listening to the Q and a right before we started recording the Q and a that, uh, Chloe Zhao did with the New York Film Festival. Um, basically, they recorded something so that they can play after the movie and mm-hmm. virtually for people who are watching it online. And she talked about how the book doesn't have the Fern character. So all the other people we see in the movie, and if you saw the movie, you'll know these names, Linda May and Swanky, are in this nonfiction book that was mm-hmm. the basis for her screenplay. But basically, this was her, a collaboration between her and McDormand, and they come they came up with the character Fern. She was like Francis Fern, basically the same. Mm. And so they built the character based on what McDormand is interested in and put this character with the other real life people who are in the book and Mm. then watch them interact. So that's like the way they came up with the movie, which I didn't even know that until like two hours ago. And I just found Mm. it, um, really interesting and like even the people who played McDormand's family apparently are Francis McDormand's friends in real life and so they had they that's how those scenes came about um so yeah and yeah and similarly David Strathairn Strathairn is the only um other like real professional actor in this Mm -hmm. and he plays a man that Francis meets and he's kind of interested in her but she's undecided Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and even even his story, like it's not him, obviously, because he's a famous actor, but um, the guy who plays his son is actually his son. Yeah. <laughs> and he was chosen because he has a personal friendship with Francis. So it's okay. not like any actor. They chose somebody who's a friend of his. Yeah. So that, that, uh, that sort of docu-fiction uh, hybrid works very well for this movie. And mm-hmm. it's, it, it is, I suppose it is very similar to the writer, which I think a lot of you did see. It is similar to the writer, but it is more polished. It's like, um, I love the writer. The writer was my number one the year it came out. Um, and this is not a knock on Nomadland, but it is more polished. It is more professional. You can see like she had a bigger budget to work with, which is not a knock. Everybody should have a bigger budget when they're successful um, yeah. for their next project. So, so it is taking what has worked for her with the writer and sort of adding, um, other elements to it. I think chief among them is her collaboration with a professional actor or a movie star, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Francis is incredible in this. Um, 
I think people were so starved for Oscar talk <laughs> that they sort of jumped the gun with like third Oscar, but she is incredible in it. She is. She's not, yeah. she, not going to win a third Oscar. It's a very, very quiet, subtle performance, um, but she's incredible in it. Yeah, she is totally. Um, you know, I think the Academy jumped the gun. They should have waited to give her the second Oscar for this instead of uh, <laughs> three bit more. <laughs> They're going to look back and be so stupid. They're like, oh, we could have given it to Saoirse or Sally yeah. Hawkins, and now we could <laughs> this would have been McDormand's second Oscar. Yeah. Yeah, if she hadn't won, uh, yeah, if she hadn't won recently, I would be more uh, hopeful that she could pull this off. Um, but yeah, it's very, and, and the, uh, the very enjoyable for the actrosexuals among you, um, the very enjoyable thing about this is it's really new, uh, it's really a new performance from her. Like it has some of her like screen persona, obviously since the Mm -hmm. character was built for her. Um, but it's, I would not compare this to her other performances. It feels like a different thing to me. I love the humor in it. Like there are so Mm -hmm. many moments where you just see that this is somebody with like a wicked sense of humor, which I guess is what Francis brings to Fern. Mm -hmm. Um, so those moments I really love that it just shows it brings out, it makes this like a full real, real person when, especially mm-hmm. when she interacts with the other, um, non quote unquote non actors. Mm-hmm. Um, and I agree, it is a sort of a different, uh, a different, um, performance, but it's also very rooted in her, in what we've seen from her before. Like, it's not suddenly she is like, you know, completely different. It is, um, it, she just builds this character that's based on herself. Mm. Yeah. I just, it, to me, it just felt very, um, a revelatory might be a little strong, but it just did not feel like a movie star performance for me, even though clearly the movie is only this good because it has a very, very talented movie star at its center, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think the difference for me is that this is a very quiet performance, and Francis McDormand usually plays people who are outspoken and talk a yes. lot. And yeah, and, she, and Fern forceful. does not talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, like, sort of they're forceful in their convictions and all of that. But um, this is completely different, and it's very quiet. Yeah. Um, and the cinematography, as much as I can tell, again, I had uh, I had uh, issues with watching it on the TV, but... Um, as much as I can tell, the cinematography is very beautiful, again, like it was in the writer. Um, and, you know, it's, it, uh, with the Oscars, it's funny, like for a while we had, there was beginning to be an issue and people were talking about maybe the cinematography category should be two separate awards because, like, computer-generated movies kept winning cinematography. Mm. But it does feel like we're at a swing back where more naturalistic uh, photography is making a comeback. Cause you know, Lubeski who won um, a couple times in a row, like he, um, he favors that. And obviously this is very sort of like magic hour uh, mm-hmm. lighting with not, not artificial lighting, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's pretty, it's, it is gorgeous. And I think the cinematography is definitely one of the strongest aspects of the film as is the score. The score is so beautiful. Like, um, it just, it's the thing, it's the cumulative thing. Like, it's an experience. This movie is an experience. And as it goes along and it reaches its climax, for, that's how it's worked for me. 
it's just at the end, it sort of ends in this, um, you know, I don't want to give it away, but anyway, the last 10 minutes, the cinematography and score sort of kind of take center stage and McDormand sort of goes to the background a little bit. And that's mm-hmm. where it just sort of like, it hits you. Like it all comes in because of the images that you're watching and, and, and just the beautiful score that you're listening to. The mm-hmm. experience sort of becomes just a lot more than just fur. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's uh, it reminded me a little bit of Brokeback Mountain in that way, and the themes are very limited. The score is not um, not in very much of the movie, but when it is, it's very effective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Nomadland, it's great, and uh, it'll be up for Oscars, and hopefully, you all love it. <laughs> Coming out in December, supposedly. In some in some fashion, we don't know what December is going to look like yet. Um, yeah, but the thing, it's like, you know, Fox Searchlight kind of sort of said this is the movie that if, if we're going to release one movie this year, it's going to be this one because they put all their muscle behind it and, you know, delayed everything else, including mm-hmm. the French Dispatch and all of the other movies they had. So it's definitely going to come out, I think. Yeah. We just don't know what that means for people yet. Yeah. Um, I mean, particularly, you know, L.A. and New York, because they do... Apologies to all of you elsewhere, <laughs> but LA and New York does sort of run the media <laughs> of the world. So that's, that's a strange disconnect because there are movies coming out every week elsewhere in the United States, but like people, the media isn't, aren't, by and large, the media is not talking about those movies because there are movies opening every week in movie theaters, mm-hmm. but you never hear anybody talk about them because the media is located in LA and New York. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like for awards purposes, like everybody yeah. who votes in awards usually by Thanksgiving has received a screener or a, or a link of all the movies that are wanna be considered for awards. So I don't think that process will change this year. Although it, it probably won't change, but I the thing I do find strange about it is it seems like they're not yet worried about the fact that um, late releases tend to do well at the Oscars. And now they're doing everything two months early, essentially. So I am curious about what will happen in February when people go to vote and they haven't seen these things since November. Mm. <laughs> that would be interesting. Yeah, we'll yeah. See. but there are a couple of movies that have announced January and February releases, like French Exit and the uh, People versus Billy Holiday, or or right, the but, United States versus Billy Holiday. Right, but some of those are screening in October. Oh, okay. You know. Yeah, I mean, French Exit is screening next week at New York. Yeah. yeah. Which, you know, as you can imagine, I'm on pins and needles right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can count down the days. I can taste the movie. I'm very yeah. excited. Next Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I loved the book. And, of course, Michelle Pfeiffer is my favorite actor. So, uh, yeah, I'm very excited for it. Um, so what else did we see besides Nomadland? Let's talk about Night of Kings. This is Ivory Coast's Oscar submission this year. Um, and you want to tell us about it, Martana? Yeah. Um, so Night of Kings is directed by Philippe Lacote, and it is set in Abidjan in the Ivory Coast at a prison. Um, and there, there is, it's sort of a prison is ruled by this um, older prisoner called Blackbeard, and he wants to um, – he's, he's in control – and then there is a new um, inmate who comes in and basically they choose him um, to tell a story. That's how 
it's sort of mad, it's sort of like rooted in it's it's real, but it's also sort of a little bit of magic realism. So they choose this young guy and they tell him, you, you have to tell a story. And then there is somebody else who tells him that if you, you have to keep them engaged until the morning or they will kill you if you tell them the story. So he starts sort of concutting the story. Um, and then we see the story that he's telling. And it's, it's a, it's a movie that <laughs> you need to watch it. I, I loved it. I thought it was tremendous. And it's mm-hmm. such a confident sort of um, filmmaking because it's it's one of those films that is not afraid to sort of just give you lots of scenes of people just telling you a story instead of showing you the story, which I always, something like Almodovar does really well. And this is mm-hmm. not like Almodovar at all, except there is somebody telling you the story instead of showing you the story. But I just found the the way they set those scenes mm-hmm. choreographed almost like a musical. It's not all of them have music, but... A lot of them do, and even when they don't have music, they're just choreographed, like as if the storytelling becomes its own rhythm. It's a dance of sorts between the teller and the listeners, and it's mm-hmm. just great to behold. I loved it. It's um, I did not love it as much as you, um, but I did really enjoy it. Um, I found it's um, it's it's very like gripping, but I I found um, it a little uh, what's the word? Like if if there hadn't been things that were easy to connect to, like the the framing is very like Shahrazad, mm-hmm. um, uh, like tell the story so you can stay alive. Yeah. Um, and you know it has like sort of like the the sort of uh, fabulism of it, like sort of where it's like real but not real. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of those things are familiar tropes and techniques so those things kept me like inside of it but i did find it kind of bewildering like i think if i was from the ivory coast i would think it was maybe a masterpiece because <laughs> it does feel like there's a lot that's lost in translation of like politically and the interpersonal dynamics like i found very easy to lose track of mm. like there's this kind of interesting thing where the people who run the prison are sort of sequestered into this little room where they're sort of watching. Mm-hmm. And the movie's fun because it, like it fun is a weird description because it's very like dark, but, uh, and grim, <laughs> but it has like these layers. Like you're telling, there's like a story being told. And then sometimes the story is visualized, but other times it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's this, the framing story of this guy arriving in prison and becoming the storyteller. And then it's almost like there's another room like another layer where the people who run the prison are sort of watching this, like they're watching the movie we're watching. Yeah. Cause they have this tiny little like viewer window <laughs> where they're looking at, they basically locked themselves in the room. Cause I think cause they're scared of prison riot. Yeah. 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 And they're like, I just mean, let the prisoners kill themselves type of thing. Kind of my thing. Yeah. I know it's sometimes there are things that does, that don't really like maybe make sense, but that. It's in a lot of movies. I always think like it's a movie. It's not real life. So not every like that's just sort of my MO with mm-hmm. watching all movies. Like not everything has to make sense. Um, yeah, yeah. So I I just was swept with the story itself. Yeah, no, it's very good. It's very good. I'm just saying like so you loved it. Like I, I loved it less than you did, but I but I do think it has a good shot at the Oscar nomination because it's very memorable and it's very confident, as you said, which goes a long way. Um, yeah. And, um, and it's a new filmmaker. He's only, that's only his second feature. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he's like Ivory Coast's like uh, young star director at this point. Um, he was submitted before for a movie called Run. Um, so this is his second. They've only submitted three times Ivory Coast for the Oscars, but two of those are his. <laughs> oh wow! Look at him. Yeah. Um, oh, Philippe Lacote. Yeah, and before they didn't, you know, the only other submission they had won uh, back in 1970, I think, something like that. Um, but it was a French filmmaker. So this is the first time that they've had a um, a homegrown talent that they're submitting to the Oscars. So hopefully they'll start submitting regularly. Yeah. Now I want to go see his other movie. Yeah. Well, there's only one, so you can catch up quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um. What did you make of the uh, sort of like fantastical elements like of the story? Like uh, because he's trying to keep people entertained, he keeps changing the story mm-hmm. and embellishing. And there's but there's also these like very, very like supernatural elements. Be- maybe because he's just trying to keep them entertained. What do you think of those sequences that are I mean, visualized? Yeah, I sort of like those like they were visualized well, but my mm-hmm. favorite were more the the scenes where he's just telling the story to the prisoners and the prisoners, some of them become sort of like his Greek chorus and they start talking back to him. Mm-hmm. And they sort of, you know, it, like I said earlier, it was choreographed as if he was dancing, the storyteller dancing with the people he's telling the story with. Those scenes were more impactful to me. The story mm-hmm. that he was telling, um, it's, you know, it, like you said, it kept changing, which is also like a clever thing of somebody who's telling a story it's trying to keep you engaged, so they keep adding and subtracting and going in directions you don't expect. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like the film as a whole as, you know, as sort of a thesis on what storytelling can be. Mm-hmm. Um, what did you think of those scenes where they visualize through the storytelling versus the scenes where it's just he's um, talking? I also preferred um, the in-prison sequences. Um I did think the uh, the uh, those sort of fantastical sequences were interesting, but I also felt like I needed more of a background and sort of like potential like uh, African mythology, perhaps because because like I know like Abu Dijon, of course, is a real city, and and Lamaka, the prison that it's set in, is a real prison. Um, so like I, I and that from everything I understand, that Zama character that he's telling the story about is a real person, but maybe the story is not true <laughs> since it's so fantastical. Yeah. Um. So like, there's a lot of things that I felt like if I understood more about the Ivory Coast and about those stories and perhaps African mythology, I would have got the movie more. If that makes sense. Yeah, maybe. Um. It's, uh, but, it's, yeah, I love the in-prison stuff, especially what you're saying, like the, like, I think people, like, to expound on what you're saying, I think the, um, people who like modern dance and, like, uh, performance art will really enjoy the movie because there's, uh, like, gestural storytelling, like, you know, the, the where the, you know, the Greek chorus, but it's more of like a movement chorus. Mm-hmm. You know, um, they're not so much commenting on it as sort of like, uh, you know, sort of performing what he's saying, which is yeah. really fun. Yeah. Um, one of the things it wasn't it wasn't Lacote, but I was watching the a talk in at New York online at the festival, and it was Ephraim Asili, the director of The Inheritance, uh, which is another movie that played there, and he was saying that 
Um, he thinks of his movies are um, at are as something that sparks the conversation. So if you watch the movie and you end the movie and you have many questions, he has done his job, and then you should go do your job and sort of um, find more about what you were curious about or what you wanted mm-hmm. to find about. So I think maybe that's also a good way to think of um, Night of the King because it is rooted in a real story. And like you said, you know, that character of Zama is supposed to be a real person, but the story he's telling is not really real. So maybe people who like the movie or watch the movie then can go out and find more about that prison and about mm-hmm. all these other things that maybe they're definitely not clear in the movie. Um, yeah, yeah. But it sparks curiosity and conversation. And I think that's sort of what makes it special. Mm-hmm. It reminded me of this Canadian feature, which I, I almost never hear people talk about, but called Lilies, which was a queer film in the 90s from Canada but it also had this thing where the you know inmates were sort of telling a story and acting but there but there it was more the the fabulism was much more pronounced where like almost half the movie was the sort of visualization of the story as the prisoners are sort of acting it out um so like that these more familiar elements like the Shahrazad like framing device and and um and that sort of heightened, like, let me tell you a story and act it out for you. I found very engaging, but I think because I have this, like, in some ways those storytelling tropes are familiar. So it was an easy, like, in to this, you know, culture that I knew nothing about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's very, very well-made movie. And I really think that people will like it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I like it. So... Um, I don't know if it's play. I think it already played New York. So maybe if you didn't catch it, you can't catch it. But it's up for the Oscars, so it will get released somehow. <laughs> Sometimes those things take a really long time to get released, but um, it, it will eventually make its uh, way around. Sometimes they re- get released that year. You never know. Um, but yeah, he's definitely got a bright future, that filmmaker. Um, he's two for two with Oscar submissions for his work. <laughs> Um, uh, anything else that we've seen recently? I mean, the other movies that I, I've seen, like I've mainly been watching the New York Film Festival recently, so um, I have seen the two uh, Steve McQueen movies that have played, Lo- Lover's Rock and Mangrove, and then I've seen um, Fauna and um, Time. Have you seen Time, the documentary from Gareth Bradley? No. Mm-mm. Uh, that is like, um, I think it's coming out in October, so, and it's gonna be on Amazon so everybody can see it, but it's definitely my favorite movie that I've seen this year. Um, oh, wow. It's a beautifully told story. Um, Garrett Bradley, the filmmaker, she follows this woman called Fox Rich, who is an activist whose husband is in prison and she's trying to get him out. He's been given 60 years, um, for a robbery and so she's trying to get him out. Um, and then she mixes the the footage she shoots of this woman plus um, footage that Fox Rich herself has shot for her husband for all the years that he's been in. She's been sending him videos of um, herself and their children and, you know, for the last 20 years. And so it's a documentary that's a mix of this current day footage of this woman plus her archival footage. And it's all in black and white. It's all beautiful. It's just like... You never know which one is the archival footage and which is sort of the footage that the director 
um, shot and the movie is called Time and by the end of it you know exactly why it's called Time because it mm-hmm. is about the passage of time but it's just it's just so beautiful and it's like it's so exciting and exhilarating when a filmmaker sort of just makes all the fucking right choices about every single decision um, mm-hmm. they made um, um, really beautiful that one also is I think played last weekend in New York Film Fest, but it's coming out in a couple of weeks, so it will be on Amazon. It's beautiful. Mm-hmm. It's definitely my favorite film of the year. Just oh wow, gorgeous. Um, oh, we did see. We both did see one other thing that is that is. Uh, I don't know where it's playing, but it's playing somewhere now. The net, the nest. <laughs> The new film from Sean Durkin, who directed uh, Martha, Marcy, May, Marlene, um, like almost 10 years ago. Um, It took him a while to make a second feature. Yeah. So this Um, is Jude Law and Carrie Coon in a sort of marital woes movie. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I kept waiting for, for it to understand what sort of genre I was watching because I think the uh, log lines or whatever made it sound like a thriller, <laughs> but it's really uh, just a marital drama. Yeah. Um, and the time frame I found kind of interesting because it's not very pronounced. Um, it takes place in the eighties, mm. um, but it's not super um, like eighties nostalgia, like a lot of period pieces would be. Um and the only really clues that it takes place in the eighties are early on are that Carrie Coon's hair is very eighties. <laughs> yeah. She's got this sort of feathered and, you know, layered to like hair. I think also it's maybe sometimes it's trying to be a gothic thriller because like most of it takes place in this big ugly house that yeah. they live in and sort of it's decrepit and falling down a little bit. If I I mean I saw it at Sundance, so it's been a long time now. Um, but I thought the house was kind of trying to be a focal point, um, even though it's mostly just about them squabbling. Um, and so things happen in the house and that are supposed to, I guess, metaphorically, like things start dying and becoming, you know, decrepit in the house. And we're supposed to think that that's their marriage, I guess. Um, I found it a little obvious and kind of like just, not a great movie at all. I think the acting is good, especially from Carrie Coon. But my main thing about it, it was that it doesn't get going until it's almost half over. Like yeah. there's sort of yeah. um, confrontation and sort of like the fissures in the marriage. There's a lot of setup and for things that become inconsequential at the end. Like there's a lot of stuff with Jude Law's job and his boss and scenes that are just showing us sort of why he's spiraling, but also it, I didn't need to see all of that setup to know that there's something wrong in the marriage. And by the time they sort of um, reveal to us what's wrong in the marriage, it's just like, okay, we've been here more than an hour. What else? Yeah. The, yeah. Uh, cosine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, Cause I, I think part of me waiting for it to become a thriller just because that's how it was sort of described. Um, part of that, I would have just just settled into this being a marital drama, which I actually like that genre. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, except for the fact that nothing was happening, even including up to the marriage itself. Like you don't, 
if it's going to be a marital drama, there's just so little of what's going on between them until about halfway through. Yeah. Um, it's very strangely constructed because it's, uh, yeah, as you say, it's like all set up, but there's no, um, sometimes slow burn movies, like they use a lot of setup. The idea of, of that structure is that everything will pay off. Mm-hmm. So it's like a simmer to a boil type of thing. But in this, it's just like you get, it does, it does like get more dramatic. Like the last, the back half is much more um, intense. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it doesn't feel intense because that you waited an, over an hour for something to happen. Yeah. I mean, it, it's almost like not try. I, like I don't. This seems like a mean thing to say, but I almost feel like he doesn't trust the actors because Jude Law and Carrie Coon are both great actors. Like, period. Mm-hmm. So, like you, great actors. Like you know, you always hear people from. You know, when they talk about the making of movies, like if you have a great actor, you end up removing dialogue. And scenes like you realize, oh, they don't, we don't need all this because the actors are telling us all these things. And I did feel like that first hour, I was like, these actors are so capable. Like, why are you giving me so much background when I, when they can tell me what's happening? Yeah. Yeah. You know? So I did kind of find it a chore to sit through and I feel so bad because like little, like little movies with like big actors, like, and directors, I, you know, I want to succeed because I thought Martha, Marcy May Marlene was great. So I've been like really looking forward to him following that up. Uh, but I just, I didn't enjoy it. Yeah. Um, and the thing is like the buildup that we talked about, it just, to me, the, the, the sin of this movie is that if the buildup was about something that then becomes really related to what happens in the, in the second better part, then that would have been a good choice, but it becomes inconsequential. Like all yeah. these scenes of Jude Law at his job with his boss are just about one, one idea. And they could have explained that idea in one scene or let Carrie Coon just ask him, what the fuck are you doing at your job? And we would have gotten the same, <laughs> the same sort of result as opposed to all those scenes that meant nothing really. Yeah, and, and, and Jude Law, it's not like he doesn't know how to play, like, he, he's like a already... Lot, basically, like, he could have just played it, to your point, yeah. Yeah, and also, like, he he has kind of, like, a, a one movie it made me think of, oddly enough, because they're about as different as two movies can be, was I Heart Huckabees, because in that movie, you know, he's, like, a biz- his smarmy businessman, mm-hmm. who's sort of, like, the rug pulled out from under him, like as he starts to have starts to have this existential crisis, which is going around. Um, and so like, so I, he are, I already know he can play those things like in 30 seconds, you know, he can convey yeah. that, that sort of dilemma. And, um, and like you, so he gives you, but the movie gives them so little to play in the first hour. Yeah. They're, they're that, basically like, not in many scenes together at yeah. the beginning. They're isolated, which is like, and then she has like a horse and I'm like, okay, we know the metaphor of the horse. <laughs> like, did we need half an hour of this horse just to then, you know, for a very obvious metaphor at some point in the movie? Okay, yeah. get it, Sean Durkin. Yeah, so if it's streaming, I forget where it's playing or if it's VOD right now. Um, it's VOD, yeah. And yeah. It, it's playing in some theater somewhere. Who knows? Where. Well, if when when it starts streaming, if you like Carrie Coon and July, you can just turn it in an hour in. Just scroll to an hour. <laughs> Yes, there is actually a fantastic scene of like a dinner party. Oh yes, that seems great. Yeah, so amazing. They go to this dinner party 
with his work. Um, he's trying to do some deal, whatever. And they go to this dinner party with his business partners, the people who's trying to do a deal with, and she's supposed to act like the beautiful wife, and she basically unravels. And because she discovers what a liar and an asshole and whatever, everything that, that we already knew, and she must have known, she dis- discovers in that yeah. scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's so a very good scene. Yeah, and she's amazing. Just as she decides, fuck you and fuck all of you, I'm just going to do what I fucking want. It's so yeah. good. <laughs> yeah, that that seems... Uh... Actually, that that whole like long sequence in the movie is great. Um, that's sort of the client. It becomes the climax of the movie essentially mm-hmm. because, well, it's more like the setup for the climax. But um, yeah. but it all involves this night that where everything goes wrong for all of the characters. Um, yeah. You know, because they have two children who get a lot of their own scenes as well. Um, and so everything sort of comes to a head in that one night. But that that's definitely the peak of the movie. But you have to wait a long time for it. Um, because they each, both Jude Lai and Carrie Coon, get a lot to work with in that scene and the subsequent scenes. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, why on earth did they make us wait an hour and ten yeah, minutes I mean, for anything to happen? Yeah, I mean, the movie should have just been about that night, a night yeah. in the marriage. Like, just <laughs> do it about that one evening, and it would have been yeah. amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, because I actually love, for, for like the 80s stuff, I actually loved that scene also because... When when she exits the scene, she goes to a gay bar, which is like so random. Um, she's and yeah. she's dancing to like Bronski B. It's uh, that whole sequence is so fun. Like from the yeah. the whole climax is really good, but the rest of the movie around it is like, uh yeah. Um. Anyway, so we can't. Yeah, we can't super recommend that. But I still love both actors and. um I just wish that the movie was worthy of them. Yeah, I mean, it it is nice to see Carrie Coon as the lead of a movie, which I, if I'm not mistaken, this is this her first movie lead. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it might be, unless they missed some indie somewhere. Yeah, I know she's gonna do the Ghostbusters. That's another lead, but this is the first one out, so go see it. Yes. Um, it would be easier to recommend if it was just streaming and you didn't have to pay like fifteen dollars to see it. <laughs> Even go out. There's still a pandemic out there. I don't recommend anybody going out to a movie right now. No, I mean uh VOD, that's what I was referring to. Yeah. Um Yeah, because most most things that are in theaters now, from my understanding, you can rent. They're doing sort of VOD and theaters for most yeah, of them. I think so too, yeah. Yeah. Um, any of the, did we see anything else? Um, well, what are, what our appetite for next week then, Murtada? Um, because my screeners, again, technical problem, boring. Uh, but I have not had access to, uh, Boys in the Band, even though I've been asked to watch it several times. <laughs> yes. Um, um, to give us a little preview. I mean, if you're familiar with Boys in the Band or if you saw the recent Broadway revival, it's basically a filming of that. Um, it is a very faithful adaptation, and that's maybe why I thought it was completely unnecessary. Um, the 1970 movie exists. People can watch it. Um, I, you know, I, I applaud Brian Murphy and Joe Mantello for trying to preserve the history of gay artists by sort of uh, preserving this new revival in a film mm-hmm. form 
But the play itself, they just don't examine this play or reinterpret it in any way. Um, its purview have, has always been limited um, when it comes to race and class, and they don't do anything with this adaptation to sort of try to give a more a new reinterpretation of it. It's just presented as is, and it's not examined in any way. The actors obviously are good because they've played this on stage. They're very familiar with it. Um, I just found it very caustic and claustrophobic. And um, I well, know... Well, the material itself is that way, though. Yeah, the material itself is that way. And I know, like, like you know, um, Mark Crowley, who wrote it, obviously is trying to make a point about how society's attitudes towards homosexuality drive these people to be this awful, basically. But frankly, it gets just awful, like two hours of people just throwing obscene um, insults at each other. Every word out of every character's mouth is an insult. It's just like, okay, what's the purpose of this? <laughs> it was not fun. Like, I, I understand that shade and quick wit are part of many gay men's lives, but this was not just quick wit. It just was insults. Um, yeah. So, and they don't examine anything like... Like I kept thinking of, thinking of the Oklahoma, the revival that just happened on Broadway, which didn't change a word in the text, but completely reappraised the whole thing. And you, you end that show seeing Oklahoma from a completely different point of view. And I wish that Joe Mantello had done that with this because there is a way to do it without mm. changing the text and the, and the intent of the original author while also examining things in it that maybe hasn't stood the test of time. So, um, but it's just the 1968 play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, pre, uh, pre Stonewall. Um, yeah. Which is why I, what I do think is an important, I mean, I'm glad a new generation is getting access to it again, as you say. Um, cause it's very hardy. I first saw the, the, the 19, it came out in 70, right? The movie 1970. The movie 1970. Yeah. Um, I first saw that on like VHS or something when I was like a teenager. Um, and uh, I was just like, Oh, this movie's awful. Right. And I like after, but I meant awful in terms of made me feel like terrible. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, and, and I, and I noticed that people, I had the same problem with it that I think I'll, has become more of a problem for people in 2020 in that um, I think it's actually an audience problem rather than an art problem now is that people are really, really having trouble seeing things in context of when they were made. Um, like everybody has, um, has, you know, all these modern evolutions of thought or whatever, and they have real trouble like accepting context from past like, I mean, being pre-Stonewall is like a major shift for gay people. Mm -hmm. um, and this this movie, you know, the play was written pre-Stonewall and it was a big, big deal. And like if you uh, to have like an entire play about gay people, even before gay, gay liberation was like unheard of. Um, so once I started to understand the history of it a little more when I got into college, I was just like, oh, OK, I can see why I hated that. <laughs> but um but then I started appreciating like what it was for its time. And so I've been kind of excited to see the um, revival. Um, but again, what you're saying, like you can, you can put things in context of when they were pr presented and also comment on them. 
Yeah. So it doesn't it doesn't sound like um Yeah. I mean they've you done just that want, exactly. want to see a historical piece. Yeah. And it is it is, you know, a piece that, you know, it's it's in the gay history. So if that's the intent of obviously that's why they did it. So for that, yeah, just watch it. But I don't think it adds anything. Like if you've seen the movie or you've seen the play, there's no need to see this. Hmm. Okay. Well, I I can't speak to it yet, <laughs> other than to share my history with it of, of of hating it at first and then growing to appreciate it once I understood its yeah. historical relevance. Um, um, and yeah, I reviewed it, so we'll put the link to my review in the so if yeah. you want to read more about of my thoughts. Although I think I said most of them. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. Um, those, we're back on the horse. I don't know what we'll talk about next week, but we'll figure it out. <laughs> Michelle Pfeiffer will have to be in two weeks. Yes. Uh, that's going to be so hard to talk about without spoilers since it doesn't come out four months after the premiere. Yeah. We'll they're, sa- they're saving it for February. <laughs> um, but, you know, February might prove to be great timing for Michelle's long-awaited Oscar. We'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to get ahead of myself, but I just did. <laughs> oh, it's exciting. That makes it exciting. Yeah. Um, but it, it turns out Best Actress is the only category that it's starting to feel exciting. Um, maybe that's just because of what I pay attention to, but um, it also feels like there's... You hear, at least from, from, from what's coming out, there doesn't seem to be as much as the other acting categories, except for maybe supporting actor, because a lot of movies like Trial of Chicago 7 and other movies have big ensembles. Mm-hmm. Um, so supporting actor might be intense this year, but so far it doesn't seem like anything else is, <laughs> other than Best Actress. Yeah, I agree. Although Delroy Lindo might disagree. Well, but... He doesn't have competition yet, is my point. (laughs) So, like, until there's some best actor candidates, he's, you know, it's all his game right now. Yeah. Um, Because, like, can you think of any other best actor candidates? I mean, people are talking about Anthony Hopkins, but, you know, I haven't seen that movie. But he already has his Oscar, yeah. Um, That wouldn't stop them from getting a second, but thanks for listening, everyone.